You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But at the moment the beaver had spoken his name, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. We're in a tight spot. Every one of us, just like Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, upon hearing the name of Aslan. Because there is no name that brings the universe to attention like the name of Jesus Christ. We've all heard the name of Jesus, and so far we've all believed certain things about that name, about who he is. And and here's what we all know for sure, that there's really no argument about Jesus changed the whole world. Jesus of Nazareth is the most prominent and influential figure in the last 2,000 years of human history. There's really no question about the impact and the influence of Jesus Christ. Think about, just for one second in your head, the year you were born. Some of you probably don't remember. You were very young. Um, But the year you were born, think of it in in your head. Here's the deal. That date tells you the number of years that you were born from the year that they believe Jesus was born, right? Our whole history is broken up and measured by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It splits history in half before and after Jesus. And that's not all. We have a much more significant uh, impact that Jesus has had on the world. Jesus changed the whole way that we look at life, and the value of life, the way we looked at everything. If you're a woman here today, congratulations. Um, It's a blessing to be a woman. uh, But there was a time when people didn't think that. In fact, when Jesus was around, women were not respected, considered equal, considered important, considered uh, to be the same as men. And Jesus came in and said, No, I don't think so, culture. I don't think so, society. I don't think so, you who are are trying to divide people and put this one above that one and so on. No, no, no. I'm going to take women and I'm going to elevate them. I'm going to elevate women so that we understand that there is an equality of value between men and women. And that has shocked and changed the world for 2,000 years such that we live in a place now where we're at least a lot closer than we were then. And those who follow Christ and are serious about that walk understand the value of women when he came from a culture that did not at all. Slavery. The the idea that a human being is made in the image and likeness of God and that no person is lower than any other person, who do you think that came from? Where do you think that the idea, all those who got rid of the slave, the chattel slave trade in the United States and Europe They were Christians. They were believers like William Wilberforce, right? Like the Quakers and the Underground Railroad, like Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King. These people, they were influenced by Christ and what he had to say 
okay? Learning and, and, and understanding. The, the whole world gets, is very serious about things like education, right? We all got to send, they make us send our kids to school or homeschool them or do whatever we do these days. But see, that wasn't always the most important thing. There was a time when only sort of the elite people or the rich people would do that. But Jesus said, no, 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 you're made in the image and likeness of God. You have a mind, and therefore you ought to learn. In fact, all the major universities that you've heard of, Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Princeton, these were all started by believers. Why? Because it was the Christians who believed that we ought to be learning, right? That was their mindset. Jesus changed the world about the way we think about learning and about teaching because Jesus wasn't just teaching men who are wealthy and who are whatever. He's teaching women. He's teaching children. He's saying, listen, life is valuable. Hospitals, the idea that you should care for the sick, uh, we all take that for granted now. Like, of course, someone's sick, they should go to the, to the doctor, and the doctor should take care of someone that's sick. If you have a family member who's sick, you should take care of them. But, that, but, but you only believe that because of Jesus, whether you happen to trust him or not. See, back in the day, back in Rome, that's not the way they thought. They didn't think that way at all. In fact, one of the major things that caused Christianity to spread as it did was that there were a couple of plagues, diseases, okay? You have to imagine these cities in Rome, just full and uh, so many people. I don't know if you've ever been to New York City. I have. There's a lot of people there, okay? Nothing like the kind of just kind of grossness. At least they have sewers. Although they do have a lot of rats. If you've been in the subway, there's, there's a lot of rats there. But, which is weird. And they have these dogs that will go out and, and like chase the rats down and kill them. It's really interesting. Go look at it on YouTube if you want. Um, totally off point. The point is, is that in these cities, there were lots of rats and there was lots of sewage running down. The street. It was dirty. It smelled bad. But these were the cultural centers, right? They were full of people. And when a disease came, you could just imagine how quickly it would spread. And what would happen is, people would get sick and their families and their friends or whatever, they'd take off to the countryside and leave the sick people there because they didn't want to get disease. Didn't matter if they were family. Didn't matter if they were friends. They left them there. But who went in? The Christians went into the cities. The believers who understood what Jesus was saying went into the cities and cared for these people. And the people outside were like, what in the world? Who are these people that they love so much? And they didn't just take care of the Christians. They took care of the pagans too. And they buried them when they didn't have any money. And they'd sit beside them and be with them as they passed away because they, because they were sick. But they'd have somebody with them. And it wasn't their family. And it wasn't a friend. It was believers. Because Jesus brought the idea that people were valuable and they were important. And many of these Christians got the diseases and died. And they thought it was worth it because Jesus showed us that it's worth more than life to follow Christ. And that was unheard of. That was unthought of. There was an emperor in Rome who basically said, listen, these Christians, part of why this thing is spreading so fast, he was very serious about being a pagan, you know, and following these pagan gods. Well, one of the reasons it's spreading so fast is because they don't just love and care for their own people. They love and care for our people. Now, you pagan priests, go do stuff like that, and we'll sort of turn the tide back against this Christianity that's taking over the Roman Empire. The problem was there was nothing in the pagan philosophy or worldview that would have you go and be willing to die for other people. There was nothing in that worldview that would make you take care of the sick when it was safer to not. And so it didn't work. It didn't work. And as you probably are aware, Christianity was able to take over the Roman world. And of course, at this point, there's Christians all over the entire globe because the name of Jesus Christ makes everyone stand at attention one way or the other. See, back then, being humble, humility, which most of us think is a good thing. Oh, he's a humble guy. She's a humble girl. That's, that's good. That's a good thing to be humble. See, back then, being humble wasn't good. 
you, if you had accomplishments, you talked about them, right? You, you, you wrote them down. You talked about them. When you'd introduce yourself, you'd say, I'm so-and-so who's done such and such and this and that. Now, if we saw people do that, we'd be like, okay, brag much, right? Not our thing. Because we understand that humility is a virtue. It's a value, but it wasn't a virtue for them. The idea that you would, that you would humble yourself to someone who was your quote-unquote equal the way that they looked at it, they had their, their society was stratified, right? And so the idea that you would humble yourself to someone that's an equal or below, you might humble yourself in front of the emperor so they didn't kill you, but you wouldn't necessarily, you would, not, you would never humble yourself to your equal or somebody that was below you. But Jesus changed that. He's going in, he's God, he's the son of God, as he, as he claims, and he's going in, he's washing the feet of his disciples, taking the, the, the place of the lowest servant in the house, saying, no, 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 you want to be part of me, you've got to understand this. We humble ourselves. And it changed the way we view reality. Mercy and forgiveness instead of vengeance. All of these things have come from Jesus. But you know, the one that's, that's really affected me a lot in my life is the way that Jesus viewed children. Let's look at Matthew 19, 13 through 15. It says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. We think about children today as precious and special and important. But at the time that Jesus was living, that was not the case. They were not taking pictures of kids in a pumpkin or whatever you see on Facebook. You know, the little babies and the, I don't know, whatever's going on there, right? They didn't do that because they didn't care as much about children. In fact, as, as a Roman at the time, when they would have a child, they would take some time and decide whether they were going to keep that child. That's just the way they rolled, right? The child was born. They check it out. Does the, do the limbs work? Does this happen? Whatever. Is it, is it the right gender? Is it what I want? Is it this or that? And if it wasn't, there was no problem at all with taking that child and throwing it outside in the elements and exposing that child so that it would die. In fact, it was, you know, depending on how you look at it, it was basically a law. If your child was deformed, you had to take your child outside and you had to put them in the, in the, in the poop pile, essentially, and let them die. So the child was either going to die from exposure or if they were really lucky, they'd get picked up by somebody and made into a slave or a prostitute. So that was how they viewed children, and that was completely fine. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I was born, a long time ago, I had a club foot, okay? It was like this. My foot was like this. I was going to bring you the little cast that my mom had, but I called her, and she said she lost it. She clearly doesn't love me uh, to keep <laughs> a keepsake like that. I'm like, she, she's like, well, I don't really know where it is. I'm like, what? It's my little club foot cast, <laughs> so precious. But my foot was like this. I can tell you right now, I would have been thrown out on the trash heap to die. No question. Cl little club foot baby, I was deformed. Now they just, now we put you in a little cast, my foot looks fine. I don't even know if it's this foot. I don't remember. I was really young. Um, but I would have been destroyed if the worldview that predominated at the time had continued because Jesus changed the way that we look at children. And eventually, of course, this, idea, this thing of exposing children went away. One of the things that was happening was Christians were going and taking these children that were, that were put outside and exposed and, and raising them. 
and eventually it was outlawed in the Roman Empire to um, abort children or to, or to throw them outside like this and expose them. And so the Christians won. But you got to understand, I, I mean, in this case, I and maybe some of you are literally alive physically because of Jesus, because you might not have made the cut. But because we look at it differently, and the reason we look at it differently is because of Jesus and the way that he talked about children. He has had an incredible influence and continues to. I mean, you think about China, right? They don't even have normal letters there. You've seen the writing. I don't know what it says, right? It's very far away from the Middle East. It's very far away from us and so on. And yet Jesus is big in China, Big. There are 70 million Christians in China. It's possible that in China right now, today, on Sunday, that there will be more people worshiping in church than there are in the United States, which is considered this Christian you know, place with lots and lots and lots of Christians. China has tons and tons of Christians. That grows. Even North Korea, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. You've got to worship the Kims. You've got to do all that kind of stuff. There are 400, 480,000 Christians in North Korea where you're just taking your life in your hand, or at least going to prison, labor camp, whatever. Why is it? What is so impactful that Jesus has changed the world this way? How has he had this incredible effect on people? Well, he's had it from the beginning. At the end of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, um, which you'll find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is given this long, it's, it's where a lot of the teachings that you sort of recognize as coming from Jesus are sort of all in one sermon there in Matthew. Read it if you get a chance. Um, it's a page turner. It says this at the, at the end. It says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. As one having authority, when Jesus spoke, people listened. Like him or not, they listened. Some fought against his teaching, and some loved it and followed him. But either way, there was no question that Jesus made an impact, that the world stood at attention when Jesus spoke, and that to this day, it still does. And at the time, very few people got it. And I'm, I'm somewhat concerned that, that, that today, maybe, sometimes very few of us get it, what he was about, who he is. See, Jesus was seeking the lost. He lived as a servant, okay? They did not think of kings as servants. Jesus came and said, oh, I'm the king of everything. And yet, I live as a servant. He's serving the broken and the widow and the orphan and the sick and the oppressed and the sinner, those under the oppression of darkness, the downtrodden, he came to push back the curse of the world and to declare the kingdom of God. And he did it in a way that nobody seemed to understand and that sometimes we still don't. He's going to people like Paul. Paul, who was out destroying Christians, putting them in prison, going to other cities to catch Christians and put them in prison, beat people down, doing the whole thing. He wanted to get rid of it. He was persecuting Jesus and everything his church stood for. That's the guy that Jesus comes to and says, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul changes, he, Jesus changes Paul, draws Paul in, and changes his heart so much that Paul's willing to go through all kinds of trial and pain and difficulty just so he can serve Jesus because he loves him so much. How does that happen? How does Jesus change the world? I mean, he literally got rid of the ladders 
in society. You know how you, you are kind of living your life and, and what happens a lot of times or what you see with other people, I'm sure this isn't you, but what you see with other people is everybody's sort of trying to climb the ladder and feel important. And they either do that by kind of lifting themselves up or sometimes it's almost sort of like they're trying to pull other people down below them on the ladder so they can feel like they're higher, but there's sort of this hierarchy that they sort of live in. These people are more important oh, these people or those people or whatever, and, and I'm important because of whatever, and I'm better than this person because of whatever, and that whole thing. And Jesus just, he just threw that whole thing out and he just turned the world upside down and said, no, 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 that's not how it works. Every one of you is amazingly valuable, amazingly important. Matthew 20, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many people made in the image and likeness of God, everyone being amazingly valuable. This changed society, changed the world that you experience. You are experiencing the ripple effects of Jesus every day. Whether you realize it or not, whether you believe in him or not, you are living in a world that in so many ways honors you and, and thinks more highly of you because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who says you mean something. If you're a child or a woman or you have issues, physical issues, health issues, or you're poor, you're different, Jesus is the one who says, no, 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 you mean something, and you mean something just as much as anybody else. He says we all mean something, no matter who you are, something incredible, something worth dying for. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which he said was for you and me. And then he rose again, defeating death and sin. So, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who changed the world and turned it upside down? Well, Jesus asks his disciples this very question. Matthew 16, 13 through 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say? that I am. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the dominant question for every human being for the rest of the age. Condoleezza Rice says, there has never been a more important question in the history of humankind. Everybody understands it from our politicians on both sides of the aisle, on every side of the aisle to actors and musicians, to the, the, the people making widgets and, and the lawyers and the doctors and the plumbers and the whoever. Everybody understands that there's not a more important question if they just think about it. There's not a more important question than who is Jesus. Do you all know how to make gold? And don't tell me we don't make gold. I know we don't make gold. We go find it, right? Or 
Somebody goes and finds it. I don't go find it. People go and find it, right? But when they find it, it doesn't look like gold. It doesn't look like the shiny gold, no, not normally, that we have. Instead, they find it in the rock or in, or in the river or whatever, and they take it, and it's got a bunch of other stuff with it, right? And they've got to refine it. And they do that. They, they have like a foundry or something. I don't know. I've never done this. But, they, you know, they heat, the, they heat it up real hot. And then up to the top comes this stuff called dross, and they got to take the dross, and they got to get it out so that you're, you're back down to just the pure gold, all right? they got to refine that. they got to get the dross out. they got to do that whole thing. Now, we do that to get rid of those things that are obscuring the thing that we want to see. And so in the process of understanding Jesus, we got to walk through a process kind of like that. There's a lot of things that have been said about Jesus, some of them are true. Some of them are false. There are a lot of things that have been said about Jesus that contradict each other, but they're gold in them hills. Somewhere in there, there's truth. And the way that we're going to be able to discover the truth is we've got to heat that foundry up, throw it in, and get rid of the dross. We've got to get rid of those things that, that are keeping us from seeing what's true. We've got to get rid of the improbable, the impossible, the things that just don't make sense so that we can, so we can mine down into that and try to get the gold. What's the truth about who is Jesus? And like good thinkers and investigators, which we are called to be, if you're a believer, you understand this. Being made in the image and likeness of God means you're supposed to have the mind of Christ, being transformed, thinking well. And so as we do that, as the Bereans, as we read when we were in Acts, the Bereans who would search the scriptures every day to see if the things that Paul was saying were true, we got to do that same thing. we gotta put our, we got to put our minds to the task of asking the question, who is Jesus, and coming up with a serious and true answer to that. And to do that, we got to heat up that thinking, critical thinking forge, right? And we got to sift the dross and get to the truth. Who is Jesus? Now, the first piece of dross that I want us to work on removing and answer the question, who is Jesus, is this. Here's claim number one. Jesus of Nazareth never really existed at all. Jesus of Nazareth never really existed at all. Now, you'll see some atheists, some of sort of these internet infidel type guys, you go on your Reddit thing. I don't know if you guys use that, but you know, these guys that are typing on there, they'll say things like, Jesus never existed. You know, it's all a myth. It, it didn't really happen. There was no real Jesus. Okay. Um, and so you'll see that among sort of the internet crowd, but you won't see it among scholars. In fact, this claim is LOL. Um, that means something. I don't know. Um, my daughter uses it texting. Uh, here's a few quotes from some scholars on this issue, because we're just going to deal with this one quickly. Richard A. Burge says, there are those who argue that Jesus is a figment of the church's imagination, that there never was a Jesus at all. I have to say that I do not know any respectable, critical scholar who says that anymore. Michael Grant, in recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they have not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant evidence to the contrary. That's a very... Fancy way of saying no one believes that Jesus didn't exist. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who's written books about, uh, you know, basically not believing in the Bible or the authority of Scripture and so on, there's certainly no friend to Christianity, says, he certainly existed, as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees based on clear and certain evidence. It is simply not up for realistic debate. 
among those who have devoted their lives to the study of this time period and to the New Testament and to these documents and so on, regardless of their religious or non-religious biases or bents or whatever, they believe that Jesus existed, that he was a person, okay? So this theory does not hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. A sub-theory of this theory is what I call the zeitgeist theory, okay? And the zeitgeist theory, there was, there was this, uh, I think there's a couple of them. There's these movies that came out, and I think originally these guys put them on DVDs and were like handing them out in Central Park or wherever they were, um, and, and you can go on YouTube and, and watch this. And if you get your history and your theology from YouTube, then this may be, you know, a, a place to, to go and look at it. But zeitgeist is this movie, and one of the things that they talk about is that there's all these foreign myths uh, about pagan gods and so on, and they're exactly just like the Jesus story. And so because of that, Jesus didn't really exist. Uh, if you want to uh, walk through some of that, I actually did a sermon where I talked about that whole thing and showed part of Zeitgeist and whatever. Ask me about it later. I'll put it there for you, um, and you can get that. Or we'll put it in the, if you're listening to this or watching our videos, we'll put it in the notes um, below. But, but I've dealt with that before. Let me just tell you, it's nonsense. It's not true. As, I mean, surprise, surprise that an amateur video made on YouTube isn't true. But in this case, you know, it's not. Um, so this dross on our gold is easy to remove this idea that there was never a Jesus, that he never existed. It just simply doesn't hold up. Even atheists who are serious and have looked into these things don't believe that that's true. So we can remove it. But it is something that's said. So that's the first piece that we need to pull away. But there's a more complicated and popular piece of dross, a more popular idea about Jesus. This is claim number two. Jesus was a good man and a good teacher, but he was not God. Now, this one's going to take us a little bit more time to go through. Who, who, who is saying this? Well, lots of people. Watch the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, and you'll find a whole host of people who make this claim about Jesus, right? Oh, no, no, we believe that Jesus is real, absolutely. He's real, um, and, he, and he says some great stuff. He's a good teacher and kind of this moral guy, but he is not but we don't believe that he's God, we don't believe he's supernatural, we don't believe any of that. Ask your friend who's an agnostic or an atheist or whatever, many of them may make this claim. Yeah, 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 I believe that Jesus is around, maybe he's a prophet or maybe he's a, a good guy or maybe he's a teacher, but, but he's not God. I don't accept that he was the son of God. Now why do people say that? We gotta walk through this for a second and, and look at the mindset of what draws people to make that claim. And here's the deal. I think people understand that Jesus has changed the world. I think it's just understood. I think people get it. They know that the things that I was talking about earlier, the date of their birth is, you know, how many days from the, from the years from the birth of Jesus Christ and, and all of these things and all the, the moral teachings and all the things that have happened that have changed our world. I think people understand that. And, and, and on top of that, I think people have that feeling that Peter and, and Susan and Edmund and Lucy had in the Chronicles of Narnia when they hear the name Aslan. I think that the name Jesus strikes something in everybody, and they have to do something to deal with it. They've got to, they've got to come up with an explanation. Jesus is a name, like I said, that makes the universe stand at attention. It's a name that demands an explanation of some kind for everybody, Christian, non-Christian. When you hear it, when you hear about Jesus, when you understand who he is, you have to put some explanation on it. And here's the thing. People want to see Jesus as inspiring. Because he is. But they don't want to see him as king. They want to see him as inspiring, but they don't want to see him as king. So why is there enough confusion about Jesus to make this particular claim, this claim number two here, so popular 
among some folks? How has it become so popular among so many people when there's not a lot of evidence for it? Well, here's a couple things that have led to it. One is historical skepticism, okay? So what we've found as we've done historical studies, some of it very good historical studies, we've found that sometimes there's a lot of bias that exists in the historical record, or at least in the way that the historical record is taught. And so some of the good stuff that's been done in history has been to go back and, and figure out what really happened in some of these cases and fix some of the historical inaccuracies that were there. But one of the problems with skepticism is that skepticism rarely is, is surgical, right? It rarely goes in and takes out just what it needs to take out. Instead, what it does is it just starts cutting everything up. And so the problem with skepticism is instead of just getting at the stuff and fixing the whatever, it's, it's now opened up question and doubt about a whole area, of, a whole subject area. And so history has been sort of tossed up. And, of course, Jesus is a big part of history. And so even though there's not necessarily as good of reasons to debate the historicity and the, and the, and the things that Jesus said and did, we've done so because in general we've sort of chopped up history. But here's the thing. One of the things that has moved so many people from Jesus as claiming to be God and as God to Jesus as a teacher is the church. The historical debate has been muddy because of the mistakes that have been made by some Christian institutions. Okay? And I would say the kind way to say this is that Christian institutions have shown some inconsistencies. But the reality, the realistic way to put this is that there's been some real hypocrisy among people who claim to follow Christ. And see, here's the thing. When religious people who say I'm a Christian, who say that that's what I'm serious about, that I follow Jesus Christ, that I follow his commands, but they don't care about the poor, and they don't care about the oppressed, they don't care about the downtrodden, the widow, and the orphan, it doesn't look like they're following the commands of Jesus, which they ought to do if they believe that he is God. If they believe, the ones who claim to follow him, if they believe that he is God, then they ought to follow the commands that he gives them. Even though, listen, many Christians are doing these things, okay? You can, you can look around the world and you can see many Christians, Compassion International, Food for the Hungry, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision. There are lots of groups that, are, that continue to follow Jesus' commands to take care of those who need help. There are, okay? But here's the deal. If the church that you know, the one that you've been around, if the Christians that you see aren't following the commands of Jesus Christ, aren't doing these things, aren't living this way, if the Christians that you're around are more concerned about screaming at their neighbors and yelling and getting upset about the sin of their non-Christian neighbors than they are about serving them and seeing them set free from darkness, if that's what you see in the Christians that you're around, it's going to be a very easy path from Jesus as God to Jesus as a good teacher, right? Because even the people who say they believe he's God don't do the things he say. They, therefore, they can't even believe that he's God. Why should I? Why should I? See, uh, Christianity is not about you being the most important thing in the universe. It's about Jesus. Christianity is not about your health and wealth or living this perfect life. It's about Jesus. It's not about political power. It's not, about, it's not about what we can have in the here and now and, and right here today, how we can put the best pictures of our families on Facebook or how we can do whatever. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus and the kingdom of God and what's, and what's coming and what he's doing. And if the church wants to preach the truth about who Jesus is, 
we got to preach with our words and our lives the entire message of Jesus Christ. Or we can expect more and more people to move from Jesus as claiming to be God or Jesus as God to Jesus as just a good teacher. It becomes very easy to simply dismiss Jesus as God when they see those who claim to follow him not follow him like they believe that he's God. Here's the thing. We all want to believe, Christian, non-Christian, whoever you are, we all want to believe that we're all right. Right? That we're all right. That we're, we're doing all right. When I was a freshman in high school, I was on the baseball team. And, and as we were ramping up for the season and we are in practice, I, I, I thought that I was all right. Right? I, I, I would go out there and, and in batting practice, man, I could smoke that ball. I could hit it so hard and, and, and it was good. I felt good about it and whatever. And I do okay in field. I thought it was all right. I was an all right baseball player. And so the first game of the season comes around and, and the coach has got me batting cleanup. For those of you who know what that means, that means you bat fourth in the lineup. Usually you put your best hitter in that spot. And so I'm thinking, oh, hey, I'm all right. I got put batting cleanup. I mean, I know there's guys that are a lot better than me in a lot of aspects of the game, but I felt like I, you know, I was hitting the ball pretty well and all that kind of stuff. And now fielding-wise, I got put in right field, which means something completely different about, about your skill level, okay? But I'm out in right field. I mean, we're talking first inning, first game. I feel like I'm all right. I'm all right. And I'm standing out there, and here we go. And the first pitch, I think it was the first pitch. Uh, the first game, left-handed hitter, and of course he hits it right coming at my face. I mean, just, ooh. And I, because I'm so smart, decided to take a step or two in before I've judged where the ball is. And unfortunately, that step or two in kept me from taking the 20 steps that I actually needed to take back. So I could have just made an easy catch on the ball because I had taken a couple steps in. The ball goes over my head. This is at Hudson's Bay High School where we were playing. I played for Fort Vancouver High School. Go Trappers. Um, and... And uh, there was no fence back there on this field that we were playing on. So that ball just went and went and went. And so the center fielder had to come. It was embarrassing. I mean, it was just embarrassing. I just looked like an idiot. And my teammates were like, hey, come on. And it didn't help because, you know, at the time, I wasn't, I wasn't as robust as I am now. But I've always had a large derriere, okay? And so in those baseball pants, you know, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> one of the guys on the team called me Shanene, if any of you watched Martin back in the day. I think that's what that's from. Um, but, you know, that was my thing. So I'm already, I'm already got this thing going on. And then I do the little bright field thing. Not great, right? So I get up to bat. I'm thinking, hey, we'll fix this thing. I'll, I'll, hit, I'll hit a good ball. Well, I end up walking. The guy walks me. I get to first base. The coach gives me the, you know, steel sign, right? And so I'm like, all right, I'll do this. You know, here we go. Then I take off, picked off, Okay. Never started again, never got put in cleanup again. Um, the whole, I think I got like one hit the whole season. Okay, I stuck with football after that. But here's the deal. I thought I was all right. Until the game started, I thought I was all right. Everything seemed fine without the pressure of the game when I'm in, when I'm in practice and we're hanging out with the guys and we're doing whatever. I felt like I was all right, but when the pressure of the game came, I wasn't all right. I wasn't very good at all. But we want to believe about ourselves that we're generally good people, that we're all right. We're all right. Although I'm not sure what happens with most of us when the game comes. And here's the thing about the we're all right view of ourselves. It lessens who Jesus said that he is. Because Jesus said that he's here to save us, that we're not all right, that we need him. But if we believe that we're all right, 
then we don't believe that we need him. But he said that we do. So one of us is not all right. He's wrong or we're wrong. See, there's this creator-creature distinction that exists, okay? This is the difference between the creator and that which the creator has created. There's a difference between those things. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, just starting at the beginning, first five verses, says, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, Jesus is, is the creator. Okay, Jesus is God, and he's the creator, and we were all created. Nothing was created without him. We were all created through him, and here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're called because you're the created, not the creator, creator-creature distinction, because you're the created. You're called into a relationship with God. That's what you're supposed to do. You want to be I, you've got to get into a relationship with God and stay in it and follow God. That is the proper role of creator and creature. God and us. We don't like that. See, it's not about just doing good things toward others. See, we want to reduce. If you make Jesus just a good teacher, it's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's great. And that's good teaching, right? That is a good teaching. But here's the problem with it. Without a proper understanding of the creature-creator distinction, who God is and who we are, you can never execute doing good things towards others in the right way because you don't understand it. If we do things that are good to others for the wrong reasons, it doesn't work. We're supposed to do good things for others as a response to our love for God. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you do these things because you love me because I loved you first. Because I'm God and you're not. And yet I've shown you all this love and I've died for you and I rose again. And I've defeated hell and death and I've forgiven you and I've given you grace and so on. And you follow me because of that. Because you're compelled by your love for me. But if that's not the case and Jesus is just a teacher and he's not God, then the only reason we do what is good to others is to serve ourselves. Essentially saying this, if I do what's good for so-and-so, so-and-so will do what's good for me. And it'll all work out as good as possible, right? And it does away with God as our creator and replaces God with us. And it makes us responsible to no one. And it reduces Morality and ethics to a social contract which cannot last. Because here's the problem. Social contract, ethics, and morality where we all say, hey, I'll do good to you if you'll do good to me. When we do that, it will always and inevitably in history has always been perverted by majorities who have nothing to fear from minorities. Whoever that happens to be and wherever you are, whoever the majority is who has nothing to fear from the minority will always pervert the do unto other stuff so when it serves them and they know they can get away with it. See, we either fear God and serve him and love him because he's our creator and he loves us and we know that he's good, or we got to spend our lives fearing each other and hoping we don't find ourselves in a minority, which is bad. You either trust God and he's the source of your ethics because you understand the creator-creature distinction. Or you've got to deal with people. I'll tell you which one I would choose. We want to trade the creator 
for the creature and worship ourselves or each other or money or sex or whatever. If Jesus is just a human teacher, if that's what he is, if he's just a human teacher, then we can continue social contract ethics because what else will we have? But if Jesus is God, then everything changes. We ask the question, who is Jesus? If Jesus is just a teacher, we, got, we don't have much. But if he's God, then everything changes. See, if Jesus is just a teacher, as my friends in Tennessee would say, we might should listen to him. They say might should and might could. I actually like it. When I first heard it, I thought it sounded terrible. But we might should listen to him is what they would say. You might should listen to him. You know, you might should, okay? He's just a teacher, so you might should listen to him. But if he's only a good teacher, then there's no authority that exists. And you have no accountability. So you might should listen to him. Maybe he has a few good things to say. Take what you want, buffet that stuff. Hey, Jesus says a few good things. Oprah says a few good things. Whatever, right? Stick it in your basket and use whatever because if he's not God and he's just a teacher, there's no authority. You're not accountable to him. But if he's God, you got a bigger problem because the things he say, the things he says have authority over you and you're accountable to follow them. Here's the problem with the claim that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher but was not God. Here's the problem with it. Jesus did not leave that option as a possibility. If you look at his life and the things that he said and the things that he did, he just didn't leave that option. See, he's constantly going around and saying things, claiming things uh, that said that he was much, much more than just a good teacher. He, He would say things like, John 5, 17 through 18. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30. I and my father are one. John 14, 6 through 11, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Imagine if one of you said that to each other, what would you think about that person? He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And John 10, 36-39, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Why are these people wanting to seize him and stone him and kill him? Because he's claiming to be God. Not because he said, I'm a good teacher. I'm a good teacher. Oh, okay, cool. You're a good teacher. There's a good teacher over there. There's a good teacher over there. We got all kinds of teachers in this, in this church. That's fantastic. But very few of them are saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. They're not saying things like that. And if they were, we'd be like, okay. Cuckoo. Right? That's what I would say if somebody said that to me. 
But that's not how they reacted. They reacted like he was serious, not like he needed to be hospitalized, but they wanted to kill him. And Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. That is why these Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. There was no mistake being made by Jesus. He was not claiming to be just a good man and a good teacher, but not God. That's not what he was claiming. He was claiming that he was God. Now, C.S. Lewis, some of you recognize that name, um, he was an atheist, okay? Did not believe in God for a long time. Eventually, he was drawn by Jesus Christ, and he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And he was not a big fan of the Jesus as a good man and a good teacher theory, partially because he was very serious about philosophy and thinking well, and it's just, it's just frankly illogical. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He wrote this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, Lewis was right about this. Jesus did not leave the option of good man and teacher open to us. He did not intend to. He did not want there to be any mistake about who he was. That people could, could say, yeah, yeah, he's a good teacher, but I don't accept his claim to God. He was accept it all or say he's lying. Accept it all or say he's crazy. And no one seemed to think that he was crazy or lying. That's the thing. That's what happens when you go around healing people's diseases, pushing back the curse, letting blind people see, raising people from the dead, raising from the dead yourself. Those kinds of things tend to boost, boost the claim that you're God. So as the forge heats the gold we got to remove the dross, right? We want to get to the truth. Who is Jesus? It's historically untenable to suggest that Jesus didn't exist. Just don't bother with that argument. You can go find 100 books by atheists, Christians, Muslims, whoever you want, that will tell you that Jesus definitely existed. So that argument's out. And it's illogical to believe that Jesus was just a good man and a good teacher, Okay? So we must believe that he was telling the truth and that he's God, or you must believe that he's a liar or a lunatic. Those, that's, that's, the, that's the precipice that you stand in. You've got to fall one way or the other, but you've got to do something with the name of Jesus because, as I said, the name of Jesus makes the universe stand at attention, and you're going to have to do something. But that feeling that comes into you when you hear the name of Jesus Christ, you've got to decide which way you're going to go. That's between you and God. But let me just tell you, the reason you're sitting here in this room, listening to this online, whatever it is, is because he's drawn you. He's drawing you. He wants you to see the truth about who he is. We are responsible to think well. We are responsible to believe well because we've thought well. And why is that? Because as believers, we believe we're made in the image and likeness of God. We believe that our minds are supposed to be transformed to think and to will 
better and better as time goes on. Therefore, we must follow the evidence where it leads. We've got to shave the dross off in our search for gold, whether or not we'd prefer to keep it. Whether or not we'd prefer to think, to continue to think of Jesus as a good teacher and a good man because then I'm not responsible and I don't have to worry about some of the kind of shadier things I do because most of the things I do are pretty good, right? So I'd rather think of Jesus as a good teacher because then I'm not responsible to him. Maybe that's the way we'd prefer it, but that's out of your hand. Shouldn't have listened today. That's over for you. Now we've got to keep getting down into it. We've got to keep taking the dross off and see, is Jesus who we claim to be over the course of this series, we're going to continue to ask this question. This is the question that you will have to answer for yourself. Who is Jesus? See, critics and Christians alike try to fashion Jesus into their own image or at least into an image that they can tame or control. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan the lion. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus will not be tamed and controlled by his critics or by his followers. He is the king. He is the son of God. You've got to ask yourself, are you willing to know and serve the real Jesus? We tell people all the time who are searching for truth, Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. But what is the question? What is the question? That is what we will continue to study as we ask this question, who is Jesus? Then we'll find what he is the answer to. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.